You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer, where I have tons and tons of exclusive content including b-roll episodes tv and book reviews movie reaction recordings commentary tracks and early access to podcast episodes that's all spread across all three of my podcasts that i do um all the money that i make on patreon goes to uh help uh, you know, support the podcasts and make me happy. <laughs> so, uh, if you want more content, uh, check out Patreon. Um, I'm currently doing, um, still doing an episode by episode review of the show dark on Netflix, which is a fantastic, uh, science fiction show. And I'm also working on a kind of read along review series on Stephen King's new novel, Fairy Tale, where I'm basically taking every hundred or so pages of the novel and then recording my thoughts on it. Um, uh, coming up, I'm going to be doing episode reviews of For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus. And uh, there's just a bunch of stuff there. So check that out. Once again, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And uh, yeah, welcome to the show. Tonight, I'm going to be discussing The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank, which is the 23rd episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on February 23rd, 1962. And as usual, I will be rounding out the episode with a brief review of science fiction theater. Uh, this week's episode is Season 1, Episode 30, Postcard from Barcelona. And uh, And yeah, so... Much like what I think I did last time, um, I'm going to kind of uh, step in and talk a little bit about some stuff, uh, science fiction related stuff that I've been consuming and doing recently, science fiction and fantasy. So I'm calling this segment uh, from the world of fiction and science. Um, so uh, just a couple of things this week, and I've kind of already touched on them. Um, the show Dark on Netflix, I'm kind of putting the hard sell on you guys. It is it is really, really good. Um, very cool, very tightly written time travel story about a community, a, a town, and a, a group of families that are all interconnected in very interesting ways. Um, I cannot speak high enough of the um the storytelling in the show it's very 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 engaging so i definitely i definitely recommend checking out dark on netflix and the creators of dark are actually about to premiere soon a new show called 1899 i think which has some kind of it's some kind of mystery thriller show about a lost ship and at sea or something like that um it looks really interesting i'm very intrigued by it and judging from the just high quality of dark. I'm, I'm extremely curious to see, uh, to see what they do. So check that out. 
uh, Dark and 1899. I think it's called 1899. Um, and then the o- only other thing I have for Between the World or From the World of Fiction and Science is that I've been watching For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus, as I alluded to. Um, I'm going to be doing episode reviews on Patreon beginning on October 24th, and that's going to run, if all goes as planned, I'm going to have an episode reviewing each episode of For All Mankind um, on Patreon for the $2 and above patrons. That's $2 per month. Uh, It's a subscription fee. You get access to all the stuff on that and the $1 feed as well. Um, You can either use that uh, as a note. You can either use the private RSS feed that it gives you that gives you all the stuff on your favorite podcast app or anything, or you can just use the Patreon app, which is very intuitive and uh, gets you access to everything right in the app. Um, But anyway, those episodes are going to be posted on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings beginning October 24th. And I'm hoping I have given myself enough of a buffer to kind of uh, have that all planned out. But uh, anyway, I do want to say that if you don't, if you haven't watched For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus, it is well worth your time. It is this very interesting alternate history series that is so fascinating to me. Um, and I can't remember if I mentioned it in uh, the previous episode or not, but basically it's what if, what if the Soviets got to the moon first before we did? Uh, what what does that, what pressure does that put on the space race if that were to happen? And what pressure would be put on NASA um, to, to win the space race or to win the next stage of the space race? Like what, how would that be extrapolated? And this show, just in three episodes, I've only watched the first three episodes and it's already gone to some very interesting places. So I'm very, very, uh, excited about it. And right on Apple TV plus there's like three seasons. And I think, um, I just read that. I think Rodrigo Santoro, I think is, uh, just got cast in season four. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm very, very entertained by for all mankind. I highly recommend checking that out. And again, shameless plug, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, um, for more content. So, uh, today, like I said, I'm going to be discussing the last rites of Jeff Myrtlebank. And, uh, before I get into my actual episode and my actual review and everything, I'm going to share what I knew before going into this episode, which was really nothing. Um, I put in my notes, I'm going out on a limb and saying it has something to do with a man and his death. Um, either that or he is dying. Cause I kind of thought that, I kind of thought that it might have been a a man on his deathbed um, having to, you know, he's being administered last rites. Um, I kind of thought it would take that kind of angle. And I also thought that the name Jeff Myrtlebank made me think that it might have been a Western. Um, so I wasn't sure. I was sort of on the right wavelength there, I guess. Um, but, but yeah, uh, yeah, didn't really have much, uh, much to go on there. So, uh, yeah, so let me get into the plot summary, courtesy of Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Um, This is the part of the episode, of course, where I warn you guys that I'm going to be spoiling the episode from beginning to end. So right now, if you haven't watched The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank, go and watch it and then come back and listen to this. Um because I'm going to spoil it. So here we go. Plot summary, courtesy of Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. 
During the funeral of Jefferson Myrtlebank, the deceased rises from his coffin to discover he was pronounced dead and just hours away from a Christian burial. Two weeks later, Jeff has, uh, has expressed a strong desire to work hard, and his eating habits have changed. The town starts spreading stories and rumors, which grow out of proportion. The townsfolk start to wonder if an evil spirit possessed the dead body of Jeff, thus causing the reanimation. A few strange occurrences, such as the wilting away of freshly plucked roses and Jeff beating Orgrim in a fistfight, something Jeff was never able to do, Lend credence to the rumors. When the townsfolk decide to take action, Comfort races out to warn Jeff because she loves him. The mob gathers and asks Jeff to leave for other parts uh, of the country. Comfort turns a deaf ear to the mob and stands beside her man, or stands behind her man. Jeff insists they are mistaken, but uses their fear as a motive for argument. He tells them he's going to stay, and since they insist he's an evil spirit of sorts, he threatens to dry all their wells, kill their crops, and burn down their, their barns. Scared, the members of the mob agree to leave things as they are and drive back to town, promising not to bother the two lovebirds again. After the mob is gone, uh, Jeff lights a match without striking it and smokes his pipe. So starring in this episode as Jane, uh, as Jeff Myrtlebank is James Best, who we previously saw in uh, this season's episode, The Grave. Uh, he played Johnny Robb, I believe. Yeah, he had to have been the guy that uh, that I commented that I kind of loved the way that he talked. And when he said, like, I got someone killed. Um, but anyway, this was, this is his second of three Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, previous was The Grave. Next we'll see from him is in Jess Bell, which I believe is a season four episode. I'm not entirely sure. Um, co-starring as Comfort Gatewood is Sherry Jackson. This was her only episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, and the only real notable credits I could find in her filmography were, uh, some TV appearances like the original Batman series in 1966, uh, some episodes of Lost in Space and Star Trek. Um, but she doesn't really have much on her, on her filmography. Um, playing Orgrim Gatewood is Lance Fuller. This was also his only episode of the Twilight Zone. And, uh, throughout his career, he had a lot of guest roles on TV shows, it seems. Um, but not really much else aside from that. And writer and director for this episode is Montgomery Pittman. This was his third of three Twilight Zone writing credits. Previously, he wrote The Grave and the season three premiere, the, uh, the season three premiere two. And, uh, of directing, he, uh, this is his fifth of five Twilight Zone episodes that he directed. Previously, he directed Dead Man's Shoes. And, uh, it's also worth noting somewhat sadly that, um, he ended up passing away later that year in 1962, uh, on June 26, 1962. Um, so, so yeah, so I presume that that's why he didn't do any more, obviously, because he passed away, but, um, but yeah, so that's interesting. So he did five, five directing, three writing um, on The Twilight Zone. And that is the talent rundown for The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank. And so let me get into my review of the episode. Um, as is customary, of course, this was my first time watching this episode, which is going to be different from, from next week because I've seen To Serve Man, which is next, week ep next week's episode. But anyway... Um, we open on an old style church. Uh, so we immediately know that it's a period piece and we also, at least I did, recognized the, 
the structure because it is this it appears to be the very same cabin um from the hunt and just kind of doctored up to look more like a church which i thought was interesting um and the our introduction to this world to this episode to this story are two kids that are walking around kind of sneaking around the side of the church and sneaking a look at the um like inside. And we don't know at that point that there's a funeral going on, but we find out soon enough because one of the kids says that, oh, I thought he was going to be dead uh, uh, in there. It's like, yeah, he is dead. He's in the coffin. So that's an interesting kind of just way to bring us in. Um, So we cut to inside the church and there's a priest that's giving a eulogy or giving a sermon, giving a, giving whatever you want to call it. Uh, He's presiding over the funeral. And he talks about how Jeff was a good kid and didn't really uh, didn't really get into much trouble. He says that he was a he was a good boy who didn't always show up to Sunday school, but he didn't mess around with bootleggers on the weekends or anything. So he was a good guy. And like the the phrasing of this scene, the the dialogue really made me think that Jeff was a child. And that was a little bit confusing to me because when he raises rises from the coffin, it kind of feels like a little bit, um, uh, you know, it it feels like it's not a um, uh, there. I don't know. There was there was a um, there was a level to it that I I kind of laughed at it a little bit because I was sitting there thinking like, oh my god, there's a kid, and then he opens up the coffin and then he, you know, he comes out and (laughs) I'm like, Oh wait, he's not a kid. And then I put in my notes, he looks like a teenager maybe. (laughs) And I was way off. He's like in his early to mid twenties, but it seems at least. Um, and it just, I don't know it. Um, I just thought it was kind of funny, but, uh, at that moment when, before he opens the coffin, the priest is saying that the Lord works in mysterious ways. And, uh, then he, raises up from the dead basically. And uh and then that's basically it for the opening scene except that we get an exterior shot of the church with everyone rushing out screaming and and just kind of going crazy um because they've seen something absolutely horrifying. Um and then we get Serling's opening narration which I'm going to go ahead and play right now. Time, the mid-twenties. Place, the Midwest. The southernmost section of the Midwest. We were just witnessing a funeral. A funeral that didn't come off exactly as planned, due to a slight fallout from the Twilight Zone. Okay, so what I'll say at this point is that at this point of the episode... I felt that this was a there this was an interesting way to begin the episode. That's what I'll say. <laughs> and it kind of pains me to say for me it it's a little bit downhill from here <laughs> like for the most part. I didn't really care for this episode which I'll get into. I did think it was funny that uh Serling said that the place was the Midwest and kind of clarifies that with the southernmost section of the Midwest. And I kind of I kind of chuckled at that because I live in Indianapolis and um you know, a lot of times people refer to Indiana as the the southernmost northern northern state. <laughs> and that is sadly sadly true in a lot of cases. But anyway, um so I, I, I don't know. I was just kind of, 
I was intrigued by this premise. I was intrigued by the premise. I've already, at this point in the episode, made a couple of connections that I'll talk about if I remember later after the review, but it, 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 it did have my attention a little bit. So we come back from the narration and Jeff is walking out of the church and he kind of stumbles out and he yells out like, who in tarnation put me in that coffin? Um, and like, I'm, I'm kind of into it. I'm kind of confused. I'm a little, I'm a little curious. I'm wondering if he was actually dead or if he wasn't actually dead. And then I kind of, uh, jokingly put in my notes, this is a zombie story. <laughs> um, and then the doctor kind of comes in and he says, comes into frame and he says like, well, I, I, um, I, uh, God, I can't remember what the word is for it, but I pronounced you, I pronounced you dead. I, there was definitely no pulse. You were definitely dead. You had the worst case of the flu I've ever seen. And, um, yeah. And so, uh, then the priest kind of butts in and asks him like, Hey, uh, Hey Jeff, how, how do you feel? And he says that he's hungry and he feels fine. And he's, he just, he's rest, he's feels rested. And, this whole sequence here then turns into like what I feel like is a little bit of a, a a hint of the episode's lack of direction or lack of, of cohesiveness. And what I mean by that is that then he rushes over to his parents and then they back away and he has this, Jeff has this sunny disposition. He's saying like, oh, I really hope that you got a good, a good supper on the calendar. Cause I'm, I'm really famished and all that. And then when he goes up to them, they back away because they're, they're looking on in horror at their zombie son that they were just mourning the death of. And he doesn't have any recollection of dying. He doesn't have any, he thinks that everything is normal. And then from there, the episode just double and triples down on it. And like he goes to comfort uh, his 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 girlfriend and she just says nothing. She's in shock. She doesn't say anything. And then it's it's very clear that he is suddenly like a pariah in town. And that for a brief moment felt like it was going to lead to an interesting if if, if not already well-tread, um, storyline for the episode, like what happens when this guy passes away and comes back to life and is then thereby kind of cast outcast from the community that he's in, which is sort of what the episode kind of does, but also does it very half-heartedly, which I'll get into as I, as I progress through the review, but it also just feels like, like I said, in this moment, it feels like that's where the episode's leading. And then almost immediately after that, like his sister, I think her name is Liz, comes up and just embraces him. And then his family kind of com comes up to him and is kind of coming around to, to the fact it's like almost instantaneous that like, oh, okay, well now we're not, now we're not shocked or anything. We believe that you're really him. You're alive. Okay, cool. And then comfort even comes up and, uh, and is talking to him and, and comes, comes, uh, comes basically around to the idea of him being alive. And, I don't know. I just felt like that was just very clunky because it felt like the episode was introducing one concept and then discarding it and then and then eventually goes back to it to an extent. And it just didn't feel like an organic level of storytelling for me. And 
I, at this point, also had some questions that kind of remain unanswered, basically. But I was really curious what it all means and why he came back to life. And I I thought at this point that maybe he was going to, maybe his, like, journey, maybe his journey in the Twilight Zone was going to be one of those, like, oh, I have unfinished business on Earth and I need to correct things before I can go to heaven and everything. I really thought that that could be where it was leading. But, uh, but no, it's not. And in fact, this is kind of where my issues, my real issues with the episode sort of begin to take shape. And I'll start off with this. Um, I really don't mind the country setting all that much by itself. Like I kind of, I usually don't really take to the kind of like good old boy country, uh, country kind of, um, community kind of thing. Like, I don't know, something about it just grates on my nerves a little bit, if I'm being completely honest. Um, (laughs) but here I don't mind it all that much by itself, but what I do mind is that the community is so quick to just accept that Jeff is back to life in that moment. And instead the episode kind of switches around to being about gossip and, um, and then that leading to toward what appears to be a rapidly approaching lynch mob forming. But my issue with that <laughs> is that the episode pretty much just excuses that, excuses that. It writes it off as kind of, it, it sort of seems to write it off as good old boys being good old boys. And it really doesn't have anything of value to say. Like the episode itself doesn't seem to be saying anything of uh, anything profound by any stretch. Not that every episode has to, but the episodes that don't seem to be more character focused stories, whether they're comedy focused or they are uh, just kind of character based dramas. Um, I feel like this episode is none of those things. Um, I don't get a sense that Jeff Myrtlebank is an interesting character, interesting person. I don't get the sense that the community is worth like getting in a tizzy over it or anything. I don't get the sense that their assumption that he is an otherworldly spirit or anything is anything of, of consequence and they don't face consequences for their, for their stuff. He doesn't face any consequences. Um, it just it just feels like a whole big pile of nothing and even with the episode kind of transitioning over to being semi about gossip and how word spreads around and how uh people's perspectives on things can be influenced by the words that they hear that aren't verified or anything like that aspect is interesting and it's prevalent in the episode but overall, it's incredibly empty as well. Like, Liz tells the boys in the episode, which I'll get to in a bit in my review, that Jeff is acting strange. And then so word gets around that the family is petrified because of that. And it all feels like that's that kind of thing is going to lead to something big. That and like the people talking in the general store, uh, the people talking when when the doctor is examining Orgrim, like all of that feels like it's going to lead to something big. But there's really no point to the gossip angle, and there's not even really a point to the townspeople assuming a new a supernatural presence. Um, all it does is it makes them fear 
it makes them fear Jeff Myrtlebank. And it's a it's a product of their own their own naivete and their own frankly stupidity. <laughs> like they have no nothing to back it except that they all witnessed this miraculous event. Um and it's just so weird because they see this. Like they knew that this happened and then somehow their assumption that it's like, oh, an evil spirit possessed his body and he's not really Jeff, like that feels really underwhelming in a way that doesn't feel like it should be underwhelming. Like that should be a huge part of the episode, but it's not. And I think part of that is that it just seems like something that they just grabbed completely out of the out of the air. Like this whole idea that like, oh, I think, you know, I've heard that there's evil spirits that come down and can inhabit can inhabit folks. So I think that that's what happened to to Jeff. And like, that's fine. But I kind of feel like there should have been a little bit more backing to that. There should have been a little bit more of an explanation of sorts. But it there just isn't like my kind of my go to kind of comparison to that is that even Maple Street had a kid describing monsters from comic books. Like even on, even in the monsters I do on Maple Street, the kid describes like what, like lays out like how an alien invasion would happen from a comic book. And that's enough for us. That's enough for us to believe that the, that the adults would go kind of crazy because even with this outlandish idea here, it's just pulling it out of the air for, with no, with nothing. It's just, it kind of, I don't know. It kind of bothers me. But anyway, back to the scene by scene analysis, basically. Um, the doctor uh, kind of cuts in as as the crowd is kind of going, as the crowd is going wild. Um, the doctor cuts in and says like, oh, I'm a, I know what it must be. It must be this rare, a case of this really rare condition where it appears that someone's dead and then they come back to life and they're, they weren't really dead. Um and that kind of washes it away a little bit. And that comes into play a little bit later, but it also is like, okay, that fine, sure, whatever. Um, so the next scene is a is a significant time jump, which I thought was interesting and a little bit misguided because we see Jeff talking to his mom, saying that the that his breakfast was good. Um in that he has never felt better in his whole life. She says that like the, it's been two weeks, like how are you feeling and everything? And I just, I don't like how little time we spend with the Myrtle Banks. I really don't because we get a scene with like him leaving the table and going off to tinker with some tools and stuff and fix a fence or fix, fix something or mow the grass or something. He was doing some kind of chore because he's very eager. And I don't know, I don't think there, there's not nearly enough of that. And there's not enough of the, his parents reacting in his parents' situation with this. Because, like, it, it kind of just feels like we're a fly on the wall that's just catching bits and pieces of a family's drama. And that's a problem for me because, like, we had this monumental, unexplainable, event happen. And then we get one scene with his parents, one scene with, uh, his sister talking to some kids, one scene of him with comfort, and then one scene with him with Orgrim. And then we get the mob. It just, it feels like it's just not enough. There's just not enough information. There's not enough story there. Um, and that's, that's really a, a bother to me. 
Um, so anyway, his mother is voicing his, her concerns to, uh, to his father. Again, this is the only scene we get with the parents at all. Um, and so she's saying that he's different, uh, from when he was before. She says like, oh, ever since he was born, he's all, he's always had two eggs and, uh, two eggs for breakfast. And now he's had three eggs and he keeps fiddling with things. He's more active and everything. And then, his father is just like, yeah, I don't know, you know, who knows, whatever. Um, and it's just, it's so lopsided to me. And also those examples are just way too innocuous. Like they, they are so little, like there's not a, we don't see enough of this. It's being told to us. It's breaking a a cardinal rule of screenwriting. It's, it's telling us and not showing us. And that's an issue for me because, it's like, yeah, okay, the dude just ra- was risen from the dead without explanation. Maybe, yeah, maybe he does have three eggs now because maybe he's famished. Um, but I don't know. That that also seems a little nitpicky. But also, it's just, again, it's just innocuous. Like, if if the episode had focused on the difference, like, like, like made Jeff slightly different than he was before, personality-wise that would have been a little bit more engaging. And we get a little bit of that, but not really. It's just, he's more powerful. He's more, he's more energetic. And that's not enough to make us really be hooked into, um, be hooked into the story or concerned for the characters or concerned for the conflict and how it's going to play out and everything. It just, it just doesn't really work all that well for me. Um, so yeah. So, uh, Okay, yeah, so then uh, his father tells Liz to run and get, uh, check the mail, because he's looking forward to a new catalog, and his and Jeff's mother's like, oh, yeah, you, I hope it comes today, because you've damn near, you know, worn that one down, which, fine, it's funny, <laughs> like, okay. Um, so we see Jeff's sister goes to the mailboxes, and... Um, at this point, there is there is a mailbox that says M. Uh, Pittman as a reference to Montgomery Pittman, and so she asks, uh, like these these two kids, they I think they may have been the same kids from the first scene. They're playing with a slingshot, and she's like, "Hey, uh, can I can I shoot? Uh, can I try?" And one of them like takes off his hat and takes a frog out and says, "Yeah, here's your ammunition," and like. It's an interesting slice of life moment for these characters and it's kind of it's kind of cutesy but also it doesn't matter like no like that doesn't like that has no bearing on the plot it's not outwardly funny so it's not like a comedic bit or anything but it doesn't have any bearing on the plot whatsoever and then the kids ask her like hey how's Jeff doing and then she's like hey uh yeah he's acting strange and then they run off but um yeah, I don't know. Like, here's the thing. So going back to the frog thing, again, let me hammer this down. There is no point to that scene. It is maybe supposed to be comic relief, I guess, but like, the and that's fine. Like, if I don't get the humor of it, that's fine. I'm not going to really fault the, fault the episode or the writing for that purpose. Because if people like it, it's fine. If people find it funny, it's fine. I didn't. But my problem is that this 
this scene is taking up so much real estate in the runtime that it becomes a real problem because the episode as a whole is so undercooked and so mismanaged with how the story is being told that we don't get enough of, you know, the drama of it. We don't get enough of the weirdness. We don't get enough of the interesting aspects of it. And it just kind of just, it's kind of just, just kind of dull, honestly. It's just kind of dull. Um, so then we get a scene with a kid on the couch while his mother is on the phone gossiping about Jeff. And again, another innocuous, un- undercooked scene. She kicks him out of the room and he runs out and everything. And so she says like, oh, I heard that Jeff's family is terrified of him. And then we get a cut to the a group of men at the general store. Uh, I think it was general store uh, discussing how peculiar Jeff has been acting. And then that's showing that, you know, word has got around and, and you know, everything is like coming together in terms of the the idea of Jeff Myrtlebank being abnormal. And at that point, again, it made me think that this episode was about gossip. It made me think that this episode was going to be about gossip and in my brain, I thought that it was going to be about how it can infect a community or fester within it. I don't know. But I also felt like I was grasping at straws because I even put in my notes, frankly, this episode is kind of boring so far. And that is absolutely like the case for my first viewing of it because it did not feel like it was properly setting up anything of importance uh, to it. And I just, that really bothered me. And then I also put in my notes, because this did, this was kind of starting to get under my skin, but I put the, uh, the aw shucks country tone is needling to me because it's very, it feels so heightened. It feels so like cutesy and folky that with, with, without there being enough, um, drama filled in or enough of a, um, a conflict or any kind of story, the, the kind of tone of it, the aesthetic of it, the, the, that kind of, like I said, that all shucks country tone kind of takes prominence in the episode and takes prominence in the whole, the whole piece of art. And that prominence can get very, very grating on me when that's really all that I'm getting out of it is just this almost caricature-esque kind of country tone. Um, and it just kind of, it just doesn't work for me. Um, so a man in the store, uh, suggests that this is the first suggestion that Jeff Myrtlebank isn't Jeff Myrtlebank. And he suggests that a spirit inhabited the body of Jeff Myrtlebank. And in this moment, (laughs) again, the music, I didn't, I haven't talked about the music yet, but like, this is the moment where it should be kind of coming into the fold that like, okay, this is what the episode is leading toward. This is what the episode is building up up to. But the music is so weirdly comedic. It's like this weird, like kind of upbeat sort of soundtrack. And it's as if the soundtrack is calling attention to how ludicrous the prospect that this man who was risen from the grave, um, may be a evil spirit inhabiting a dead body. Like it's calling attention to how ludicrous that idea is. 
And it's right. It is ludicrous, but it's only because it's not developed properly. And it's only because we aren't getting enough of the weirdness. We're not getting enough of, it's such a leap to have gossip about Jeff Myrtlebank and then the jump to, oh yeah, he's an evil spirit that needs to be dealt with at some point. And the music felt like it was maybe also meant to mislead us into thinking that, oh, maybe he is normal and everything. And this is just, you know, uh, people running with their imaginations. But again, all told, they don't do anything with it. They don't, it, it gets cast aside. It gets excused at the end of the episode. And that is kind of a bummer to me. It just, it just doesn't work. So anyway, we get an act break. And then <laughs> when we come back, we see Jeff arriving at Comfort's house. And from the inside, from the interior, we see her, her mother and her brother Orgrim, um, wanting her to break things off with him. Orgrim's like, yeah, hey, okay, here's your chance. You need to tell him that, you know, you can't see each other anymore. And then she's like, no, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to still see him and everything. And it's because they don't think he's normal. And he, I think Orgrim says that everyone in the county has been talking about him. And that is very, very vaguely interesting to me. But it's not nearly enough to grab my attention or to reclaim my attention because the episode has been so clunky for me that my attention has waned severely. So while that idea that's presented and then also not really that well follow through, um, is interesting. It's only vaguely interesting because it's not followed through. So I don't know. So anyway, so Jeff knocks on the door. He presents flowers to comfort, which is sweet, but um, <laughs> the roses are dead. And that's where I was like, okay, maybe things are going to get, maybe things are going to pick up. This is going to be kind of interesting because now we have like actual, like we have movement on the Jeff is weird thing. And it's kind of calling attention to the gossip thing. It's kind of, it's kind of making, um, it's kind of making the gossip have some kind of credence to it or, or, or have some kind of, um, uh, not leverage. What's the word I'm looking for? Having some kind of, um, backing to it, like actually backing up the, the gossip and everything. So that's interesting. And it's also interesting because Comfort then immediately just does not want him to touch her at all. And he takes offense to that. He asks what the problem is and she says, oh yeah, well the flowers died, so uh, maybe you have poison on your hands and I just don't want to get poisoned. Um, and so he tries to kiss her and she recoils. And it's... Uh, I, I like that development because I like Jeff's reaction to it. Um, I think it's an interesting avenue for the story to take. And it's interesting that the one part of the entire community that is supposed to be by his side, his girlfriend, um, and the person who's supposed to be someone that he can really trust is fearful of him. Like the, the kind of low grade, not necessarily betrayal, but the, the hurt that he would experience from that is authentic and works, but it's just not tied in enough with the rest of the episode. It comes into play later in the episode at the end, but we don't really have anything that forces her to like, there, there's nothing that compels her to choose to be with, with him other than his, his presence. And that just doesn't work for me. It's just, I don't know. It doesn't work for me. So Jeff gets angry and he leaves 
And um, I've, I've thought it was interesting, the kind of the way that his sunny and friendly disposition just suddenly faded into anger and hurt. I thought that was kind of interesting because he had said that he had, uh, that he was tired of people looking at him as if he were a vampire or something. I just kind of liked that. I kind of liked that as an idea that again is not explored all that much in the episode at all, but I kind of liked the idea of like gossip turning a character from a very pleasant, happy-go-lucky person to a to a very uh, depressed and sad and and upset and angry person. Like if it had developed the, it that way, that would have been interesting. But it doesn't. And then we get the moment where I'm like, I actually put in my notes. I'm going to read verbatim what I put. Just what is this episode? It's so goofy and weird. And the thing that made me say that was that. Inside the house, we have Orgrim, Comfort's brother, asking what Jeff did to Comfort, and she says nothing. So he's like, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out and show show him a piece of my mind." And it's just like he pulls up his sleeves and he says he's gonna put a stop to him, and then he runs like he he strides to the to the door. And it's just so weird and out of place to me. Like the facial expressions that Orgrim makes look so silly and unnatural it's this like very like animated like clueless like all shucks country bumpkin caricature of a facial expression and that coupled with the lighthearted music it just makes it seem like this episode is supposed to be a comedic episode and that none of the comedy is comedy is landing with me at all and it's just so weird to see a character just step into like this weird physical contortion of his face to look intimidating but it's clearly like a comedic intimidating but it doesn't fit the tone of the episode at all it just and, and also that level of caricature doesn't really appear or come across really in that same way anywhere else in the episode and I don't know. It just feels so off and just doesn't work for me. And it just compounds the fact that the episode as a whole just feels dull and boring to me, just very dull and boring. And it just, it, it didn't, it didn't make sense to me. So anyway, Orgrim goes outside and he sees Jeff getting the car started and he confronts him and Jeff very politely, but angrily says that he's angry and, and, you know, uh, you know, I'm not angry with you per se, but if you want to, if you want me to act out my anger on you, I, I, I don't want to, but you're here and I might. Um, so it's clear they're going to fight. And Orgrim says that he, he's beaten Jeff up before he can beat him, beat him up every, like he's beaten him up so many times before. And then Jeff, I thought was really, this was a really cool, um, line. He's like, but you haven't, you haven't whooped me lately. And that just like the, the drop in Orgrim's face is really interesting. Um, because he, like the implication of that is that like, oh yeah, well, he's not really Jeff Myrtlebank. He is someone else that he doesn't understand, uh, that Orgrim doesn't understand the, the level to which he is. Uh, he doesn't understand like what he's going up against. So a fight then ensues. That's kind of, I th I believe it's pretty much instigated by Jeff and he starts like he beats the hell out of Orgrim, <laughs> um, to the point where Orgrim then is like moaning on the ground and he's saying that he thinks his jaw is broken. 
And the scene ends with Comfort coming out of the house, Comfort and her mother coming out of the house, and Comfort saying, poor Jeff, he doesn't have anybody. And then Orgrim's like, poor Jeff, poor Jeff, oh, I'm a cartoon. Um, and, and I think that, I mean, okay, that's interesting enough. And I will concede my point that comfort, like when I said earlier that comfort doesn't really do anything or have anything that compels her to stay with Jeff, that line that she says that he doesn't have anybody does give that a little bit more gravitas or give her a little bit more of a reason to be compelled to stay, stick with Jeff in the end. So I'll concede that criticism. I still don't care for it. I still don't care about the characters or anything, but I'll concede that point for sure. Um, I just really don't think I like this episode, you guys. Um, so we cut to Orgrim in the store or bar, um, and he's being examined by the doctor and he's saying that he's beaten Jeff up before he's beaten him up his whole life. And there's something different about him. He's had like ring training. Um, and so he says like, you know, it's not Jeff. Uh, and everyone agrees like that it's something evil. And at that point, I'm like, are they going to form a lynch mob? What is going to happen here? And then we get, I think this is basically the last scene. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so we get Jeff at a gate, which, um, in my notes I had, is this also reused from the hunt, but in trivia, which I will probably recount later, um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's used from another episode. I'll say, I'll save the trivia for trivia. Um, so comfort approaches on a horse and horse and buggy and says that there's uh she she comes to warn him that there's a group coming to tell him to get out of town um and i don't know it this whole scene i'm going to have to work through my feelings on this because the whole scene kind of rubs me the wrong way because it's sort of playing into sort of playing into a stereotype or playing it safe um, because the mob that forms is convinced that Jeff is possessed by an evil spirit and their solution is to just ask him to leave town. And the crux of the drama rests on whether or not he'll leave and whether or not comfort will marry him. And it just feels so hollow and empty and the stakes do not feel that important. It feels like it is a cheap way to do like a mob justice or mob mentality thing without going for the mob mentality thing. It kind of feels like it's being like, well, you know, these, these good old boy country people would never do anything that would hurt someone that's different from them. So let's just have, have the guy explain to him that he's that, you know, he may be a threat. So let's just have them leave like that. It just doesn't work for me. There's nothing there. It is, it is nothing. And it just, it, it bothers me so much. So Comfort admits that she loves Jeff and Jeff uh, loves her too and wants her to marry him. And in, with impeccable timing, the group arrives and uh, Jeff asks for an answer, but she doesn't answer him. And then these idiots get out of the car and they approach him. They tell him that they think that he's an evil spirit and they then ask him to move. And this is the big moment, the big, big finishing moment of the episode. He says, well, that all depends on comfort. Uh, and he says that he, he just asked her a question. She hasn't answered it yet. 
And so she goes up to him and she's like, well, I reckon I'm with you or whatever. Um, so she accepts that's very romantic. Um, and so Jeff goes on to say that, uh, he and comfort are going to stay there and are not leaving town. And then he does the fear thing where he tells them that if they're like, here's, here's what, here's what's going on. If you're wrong about me, you have nothing to worry about. But if you're right about me and you come after me in comfort, you should be afraid about what I might be able to do if I cross them, if if they if you cross us, because I could boil your wells, I can I can kill your livestock, I can I can burn your barns, all of this stuff. And so the group just instantaneously agrees that it would be it would be awful wrong to hurt comfort trying to get to get at someone else, which just feels, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That feels so dumb. Like that just feels so, so dumb. So goofy. It does not, it is, it is a wink away at a conflict that has no resolution. Like, like it is a way for the script to resolve a conflict in the laziest and frankly dumbest way possible. And then they double down on, on their change of heart, their communal change of heart by saying that, oh, okay, well, we're, we're going to help with the wedding or we'll, we'll plan a picnic if you get married and everything. And it just, again, it's a dumb non-resolution to a really low stakes conflict with nothing to say. And it just it sucks. I I can't think of anything else to say constructive about it other than it sucks. I don't like it. <laughs> so the group leaves and we're just left with Jeff and comfort. And she asks like, Oh, Hey, you really can't do those things. And he says, Oh no, I hate to lie to them, but you know, it, you know, I needed to do that, you know, to protect you and everything. And then he lights a match without striking it. And she calls him on it and says, how did you do that? And then we have, uh, the line where he says, comfort, honey, the first thing you got to learn is not to imagine things. And so I'm like, okay, cool. He's gaslighting her. <laughs> okay, fine. And weird. And then we get Serling's closing narration, which I will play right now. Comfort, honey. First thing you've got to learn is not to imagine things. Jeff and Comfort are still alive today. And their only son is a United States senator. He's noted as an uncommonly shrewd politician. And some believe he must have gotten his education in the Twilight Zone. And there we have the last rites of Jeff Myrtlebank. And that closing narration kind of confused me a little bit. Um, I thought that maybe it was a direct reference to McCarthyism, but I don't think it's that direct. I think it's just a a little uh, cheeky kind of thing at politicians and politics and everything, uh, which is fine. That's totally fine. Um, so my overall thoughts, my first pass of the episode is that my first time watching it, I really didn't like it. And I still kind of don't. Um, <laughs> like, I feel like the tone is not consistent at all. And the Twilight Zone element of the episode doesn't really factor into the story until the very end. But even then, it feels like the mob that forms doesn't really do anything. And again, it plays up that good old boy community, country nature. Um, because again, of course, country folk would never be capable of doing something horrible. Um, and it, like, the whole fact that the mob forms to cast him out of town 
ultimately doesn't matter because the mob is dismissed kind of willy-nilly and it just is not bearing on it or anything. And the more I sat with it, and I'm going to preface this by saying that I feel like I am stretching this to a very, very big, big stretch. But sitting with the episode, I started to wonder if the uncommonly shrewd politician that's hinted at in the, in the, um, or is referenced in the closing narration, I was wondering if that's a hint at the main theme of the story. And again, this is me doing a lot of heavy lifting to find a way to kind of be somewhat interested in the, in the episode. Um, and what I mean by that, the hint at the, at the main theme of the story is that maybe Jeff represents a charismatic personality who is seen as having some kind of threatening issue under the surface. And kind of to back that, like even result results to extreme violence to an extent when he's provoked. Um, but when the group forms to oust him from the community, he's able to get back on their winning side solely on his charisma, which isn't necessarily true because it's on, it's based on fear and he's bullying them into, into accepting, accepting him. Um, and when comfort asks him how he lit the match, he dismisses it and claims that she didn't see what she thinks she saw. And she just kind of you know, just goes along with it. And then the closing narration delivers like the one-two punch of like, oh yeah, their son is seen as an uncommonly shrewd politician because politicians are talking from two sides of like, what, what's the expression? Uh, they're talking out, out of both sides of their mouth or something like that. Um, and it's just, it's, it's kind of cheeky if that's what they were going for. And I kind of, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's a stretch in, and even if that is the case, it just, it isn't prominent enough to be anything more than just something I'm kind of struggling with overall. Um, the other thing is that I kind of felt like maybe the goal of the episode was to subvert or examine the good old boy trope to tell us that people aren't as simple as that. Um, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of people willfully looking the other way because they backed a politician or because they backed an end because they backed that person. That person can do no wrong. So even when there's some weird stuff that Jeff does, they still accept him and everything because, you know, he's part of the community. Um, but that is even a bigger stretch. And I think that that's me trying to put something in the episode that frankly just isn't there. Um, and I'm grasping at, at the loosest of straws. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Um, that's my review of the last rights of Jeff Myrtle bank. I, I really didn't like this episode. It's, it's not like, I, I don't think I would say that it's the worst episode by any stretch. Um, I don't know what's a worse episode, what, what a worst episode would be. Maybe, um, oh God, what was that one? Um, oh, the one in season one. Um, oh, there was a couple in season one, actually. Uh, the, the mighty Casey is one, but that's not the one I was thinking of. Um, but yeah, I mean, there have been some, some downer episodes, some episodes that don't really connect with me and everything. Um, but this is just 
kind of a frustrating, frustrating episode um, because I, I feel like it's something that I should have gotten a little bit more out of. Like I should have gotten more out of this episode, but I, I honestly feel like, um, this episode didn't have anything for me to, to get more out of. So I'm kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel for it. Um, the other kind of bad episode that I, that I was, uh, that I was thinking of was Mr. Beavis in season one. I'm looking at IMDb to see if I've rated any of these episodes, uh, less than five stars because five stars, I gave five stars to Mr. Beavis. Um, and I don't, I don't think so. Season, and it's interesting because season three has been really good. And I, I'm kind of coming down to coming down on the side of things where I, I just don't think I get or appreciate, uh, Montgomery Pittman's work in the Twilight Zone. Um, because my other like low, rated episode that I did was a six star, six star rating for the grave. Um, and I just, I just think that it's, it's a style. It's, it's kind of a, uh, an aesthetic that just doesn't work for me. Um, and just, I I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised that I liked, um, I'm surprised that I liked two as much as I did. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it just, it's, it just didn't work for me. So anyway, that's my review of The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank. Uh, now I'm going to share a little bit of trivia um, that I've uh, scraped together. Um, the first piece of trivia from IMDb is that Sherry Jackson, who plays Comfort, uh, was a stepfather or stepfather, was the stepdaughter of director Montgomery Pittman and that Pittman had previously wanted uh, Jackson to play the female soldier in two, the season three premiere. Uh, but she was, uh, seen as too young for the role and it went to Elizabeth Montgomery instead, which I'm pretty sure I talked about all that in my two review. So apologies. Um, and then the other piece of trivia that I thought was interesting was that, um, it takes place in the twenties, in the 1920s per Rod Serling's opening narration. And, uh, according to the doctor, Jeff had died from the flu and that's kind of, apropos because it is, um, cause around that time, uh, between 1918 and 1920, the Spanish flu outbreak, uh, according to IMDb killed 50 to a hundred million people worldwide or three, three to 5% of the world's population, uh, which is wild. Um, and then the other piece of trivia I have is that, uh, that yes, the, uh, the structure at the beginning was repurposed from the um, shack set uh, for the hunt, and uh, and then yeah, so that's those are my IMDb trivia notes. Um, what I have from unlocking the unlocking the door to a television classic is that the gate is the same gate that young Anthony was playing on in It's a Good Life. So. So that's all the trivia I have for the last rites of Jeff Myrtlebank. Uh, what did you think of my review? What did you think of this episode? Was I too harsh on it? Is there something that I I just didn't get or I wasn't I wasn't getting with it? Um, like what, what's, what's the deal? <laughs> so feel free to let me know what your perspective on the last rights of Jeff Myrtle Bank are. Um, and I, maybe I'll, maybe I'll revisit it at some point, but it just, it just didn't really work for me. So, oh, well, they can't all be home runs for me. 
So, uh, yeah, so that's my review. And then as is customary, I'm going to go ahead and conclude the episode with a brief non-spoiler review from an, uh, of an episode from science fiction theater. I'm going to go ahead and play the stinger for that section now. And this week's episode of Science Fiction Theater is Postcard from Barcelona, which is Season 1, Episode 30 of the show. And it originally aired on November 19th, 1955. And the plot synopsis, courtesy of IMDb, is... After the death of Dr. Keller, researchers going through his notes discover many of his greatest discoveries came from a third party. As they continue to investigate the truth... As they continue to investigate, the truth becomes stranger and stranger. Uh, this episode was directed by Alvin Ganser and written by Sloan Nibley from a story by uh, Tom Grease. And it stars Keith Brazell, uh, Walter Kingsford, Christine Larson, and Cyril Delavanti, which we just recently saw in a Piano in the House episode of The Twilight Zone last week. And so this episode begins with, uh, as is usually the case, uh, Truman uh, Bradley uh, d- giving a demonstration or giving us a, a an introduction to the episode. And the pre-show is about space stations and how how in the near future scientists are well he says like scientists are hard at work at developing space stations that can orbit our planet and and everything um which that right there just made me kind of sad because <laughs> i just love the hopeful optimism of 1950s uh romanticizing the future of space travel and it makes me kind of sad like it just it bums me out that we're not you know, that we haven't conquered the solar system. Um, the International Space Station is pretty cool. So that's cool. Um, and so he then talks about um, how in the future with those space stations, one of the, like, what is what is going to prevent us from using them as weapons of war and everything? Um, he asks if there are going to be vessels of war or vessels of progress. Um and I found that to be really interesting and apropos because that's kind of this, that's some of the concepts that I'm seeing in the first few episodes of For All Mankind. Again, watch that show. It's so, it's so interesting. I think that if you have been, if you're listening to this and you're on the fence about watching For All Mankind, I really think that that kind of science fiction, that kind of show is right up your alley. If you're listening to a show about science fiction, you will want to watch for all mankind. It's it's really really good so far. Anyway, Truman Bradley uh, closes out this uh, demonstration by asking if like what if what if there are already artificial satellites up there? What if there's already space stations from other galaxies that are uh, that are observing us? And I love that as a piece of just. Um, I don't know. I I love that as a as a piece of speculative fiction, and I just I I love that concept. And it also kind of feels like that that kind of spoils the episode to a very big extent, um, uh, because the plot does delve into that kind of um, uh, that kind of concept. But 
as we get into the actual episode, it's pretty engaging. It's pretty solid. I actually got quite a bit of enjoyment out of it. Um, the episode opens with the d- discovery that this renowned scientist has passed away unexpectedly. Not unexpectedly. He was very old, and it's said that he's that he died in his sleep of a heart attack, which just immediately signals to us that there was no foul play, and that's not going to be the source of a mystery or anything in the show. And it's not, and that's very refreshing. Um, so basically a character is told that that Dr. Burton is kind of, a uh, a doctor at the Crenshaw foundation who publishes a lot of Dr. Keller's work. And he is kind of conscripted to go to Keller's lab to catalog everything. And he is, he like the idea is that he has stuff that has, he's been working on and we cannot lose that knowledge. His, his legacy must survive his death. Um, which I find really, really, um, good and enchanting and everything. Um, so, and, and, and kind of sweet, I guess. Um, and so we get uh, most of the episode, if not all of it takes place in, uh, Keller's lab as he is, um, as Burton is kind of going through the stuff. And I want to just shout out that this is a very good set, um, they had some kind of location for the exterior of it, um, that looks just very decadent, very, very beautiful. And then the interior of the laboratory is it's, I mean, it's pretty much the repurposed soundstage that they use in every episode, but it looks different. It looks unique enough. There's a lot of props. There's a lot of set design. So it just looks different and and good. Um, so as, uh, as Burton is going through the stuff, uh, Dr. Keller's daughter arrives who no one knew that he had one. And that's not a source of mystery. It's just, Hey, you know, uh, I'm his daughter and you can't be here because I'm the executor of his estate. This is my property. And so there's this interesting like dichotomy between Dr. Burton and Nina is her name. Uh, Dr. Keller's daughter, Nina, um, because she's angry. She is absolutely angry, but he is completely respectful of Keller's legacy Um, and he just says like, your father was one of the greatest minds of, of our time and his, his, his notes need to be preserved and everything. And she's like, no, you're in my house. You need to get out. Um, and then like, I say this, like he's very respectful of Keller's legacy, but this is 1955 and I kind of had to laugh in a very like, okay, woke liberal in 2022 way. Um, because his response is, uh, to rush her out of the house and say, if you're going to act like a child, I'm going to treat you like one and kind of shushes her out of the, out of the room, uh, which just felt just very irritating. But, um, she then comes back with a cop and, and he is then ordered to get off of the property. Um, and in that moment, she admits that she hates her father and will always hate him. And he, she explains that, you know, he hit her away and ignored her and everything. And he just buried himself in his work and all that. And he, she didn't know him, which is very tragic and very sad. And also it makes me think that Dr. Keller was kind of an ass, um, which it's explained why, and it makes sense and everything, but, and I won't give that away or anything, but it's, it's just really interesting the way that the, the plot is developed. So, 
Um, I also liked Dr. Burton having a response to that saying, um, well, you know, greatness often involves sacrifice. <laughs> like, you know, she's pouring his pouring her heart out to you that, you know, her father never like didn't give her the time of day. And his response is, well, you know, greatness often involves sacrifice. And so like on the surface, I think that that's kind of funny, but I also do find it to be an interesting dynamic because before this, Dr. Burton has said that Dr. Keller was like, was on the, like, he was one of the great minds. He was the Darwin of our age. He was the, like, Aristotle and every like, he was the great thinker of our time. So I kind of give him a pass for that as kind of goofy as that, as that is. Um, so anyway, as the episode progresses, they, they come to a, a, uh, um, a compromise and they're allowed the, the Institute is allowed to catalog all of Keller's notes and everything. And they find this mysterious postcard from Barcelona that has a key to one of Keller's biggest breakthroughs. And so it's telling the researchers that someone else is responsible for all of Keller's breakthroughs. And at this point, I also had to roll my eyes because they were clearly setting up a romance between Nina and Dr. Burton. I was like, okay. But anyway, um, they find more stuff, more interesting kind of things, including a picture of what appears to be an asteroid, but you can kind of assume what it really is, judging from the pre-show. Um, and it's just, it's a really interesting episode, the way that it goes into the mystery aspect um, of it and the resolution of what, of what he was doing and what Dr. Keller, the choices that Dr. Keller made. It's really interesting because it's, it establishes Dr. Keller as a, as a, as a very forward thinking and very like, like someone who did more for the human race and technology and scientific discovery than anyone else in his lifetime. So it's a very big thing. And what it does in the resolution of the mystery about like who is responsible for what, what it does is it takes it to a, to a level that still retains the respect and admiration of Dr. Keller, but get in and also gives us a very hopeful viewpoint of the world in the situation and everything. So it's this weird optimism and it's, it's really good. It's really good storytelling. I really liked it. So, um, also, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I just got to mention this. It's, it's a bit like, it made me kind of go yikes, but <laughs> like at one point, Nina is talking to Dr. Burton and she's like, she says the line, I think she says something like, wow, my dad must've been just like you. And like, she says it in a way that it feels kind of gross, honestly. Like it feels like, like very much like she's trying, to, maybe not hitting on him, but she's like, the body language is like, it's supposed to be communicating in a, a physical attraction. And she's talking about, uh, how much he is similar to her father. And it just felt very gross and, and weird, but, um, yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> Uh, overall, very solid episode of science fiction theater. I really enjoyed it. Um, I like the, the areas that it went to and everything. Um, and the surprises, it wasn't even really a surprise, but I liked the overall statement of it and the hopeful optimism that it presented for the future of science and, and the future of the human race as a whole. So I really liked it. It was good. Um, 
Yeah, so that will do it for this episode of Anthology. Um, Hope you guys enjoyed it. Let me know what you thought of these two episodes. And next week on the show, I'm going to be reviewing To Serve Man, uh, which is a pivotal episode in the Twilight Zone canon and also an episode that I have already seen. Um, So I saw it when they did the 60th anniversary uh, special screenings and everything. So uh, we'll talk more about that uh, next week. But um, so I'm going to be reviewing To Serve Man and the science fiction theater episode I'm going to be uh, reviewing alongside it is Friend of a Raven, which is season one, episode 31. Um, once again, uh, while I wind down and start playing myself out, I just want to say once again, if you enjoy this show, at least leave a rating and review on iTunes. That would be great. Um, or if you want more content, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and sign up for exclusive content that I post almost daily. It's a lot of content, um, across a several different reward tiers. So, uh, check that out. Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer until the next episode. Thank you guys for listening and I'll see you then. And now enjoy this short clip from our Patreon exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes, TV book and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon poopery episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Uh, like I said, this is a slow burn. First six chapters. Our introduction to Mr. Bo- uh, Mr. Bowditch really reminds me, and I, I was kind of primed to be reminded of this uh, going into the book. But uh, given the premise, it just reminded me a lot of eleven twenty two sixty three. You know, in eleven twenty two sixty three, Jake Epping uh, discovers a hidden portal to nineteen sixty or I think nineteen fifty eight in the novel. Um, to to the past that a kind of old and somewhat cantankerous uh 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 diner owner um is passing on to him and everything um mr bowditch and the shed even though we don't know the nature of the shed it is kind of cut from a similar cloth but this podcast was edited and produced by matt hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com You can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.